When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This week on BCC The Other Side, we're heading towards the series finale of Expedition Bigfoot with our episode 10 recap and discussion with Bryce. And guys, let me tell you, this show is getting weird. And Bryce has the scoop on all the high strangeness activity. To subscribe to The Other Side and listen to this episode and our entire episode backlog, go to patreon.com slash a Bigfoot Collectors Club. It's Bigfoot Collector's Club with Bryce and Michael. <laughs> I know a ghost story or two. Let's do this. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Bigfoot Collector's Club, the show where we talk to amazing guests about their personal paranormal history and share stories of high strangeness. I am your host, Michael McMillan. With me always is your other host, Bryce Johnson. And our super producer, Riley Bray. Um, if you hear sounds in the background of, of my voice, it's the three dogs I have literally at my heels right oh, now. Oh, no way. Who's, whose dogs do you have? I'm dogs. I have the privilege of dog sitting Kevin Kirkpatrick's friend of the Aww. show. Uh, his hmm. two dogs. He has a very, very early and long day uh, tomorrow. So uh, he's dropping them off tonight, and then I'm going to get them for the better part of tomorrow. Yay. Oh, I'm very excited. Dog and then one of them is eyeing my uh, action figures. Hey, buddy. No, no, no. no. Those are collector's items. No. Ken, Ken, Kenny. We do Kenny. not eat Han Solo. Yeah, yeah, we no. do not eat him. He stays uh, in the packaging. Okay. I don't want no. uh, Leia and her indoor pow- poncho getting destroyed. Okay. Um, how are you, boys? Good. Yeah, pretty good. Can yeah. you believe it's been a year since we were in a room together? Yes. Oh, happy one anniversary, guys. Anniversary, babies. We did it. We got through a year. Only one of us got COVID and survived, yeah. thankfully. Yeah. Uh, thinking about all of our listeners out there who have had to endure this year, uh, we want to say thank you for keeping us company. We hope we kept you company. Um, this, uh, honestly, podcast has gotten me through uh, some dark periods this year. So <laughs> yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you to you boys. And thank you to our listeners. And thanks to Campfire for hosting us uh, hey. during this time. Yeah. I echo that entire sentiment. Yes. Thank you. Agreed. Yes. It's a lot of gratitude all around. It's just so weird. The three of us haven't been together in a year. 
Man, and somehow we've managed year. to do this. Yeah. Yeah. We kept <laughs> Against it going. all odds. Against all odds, man. Yeah, it's wild. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's like it's weird looking back on it. It's a blurry, blurry year. It just uh Right? Yeah. Some really of it feels is. like it was just yesterday. Now totally. we're just talking yeah. like my parents talk to me on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. That's no. Abort. Abort. <laughs> <laughs> Well, before we get on with today's show, I'm going to do something a little bit different right up top. If you're one of those listeners that sticks with us through the very end of each episode, you know that we love to give shout outs to people who give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Do this for us. It makes the show get to more people. Uh, Mm -hmm. For some reason, that's the way the algorithm works. That's why we ask you to do it. We, of course, love to hear uh, you sing our praises. Uh, but if you do so, give us a five-star review. We might read it on the show like I'm about to right now. This is from WitchKiki13, who writes, One of the best! Thank you to Bryce, Michael, and Riley for reigniting my interest in all things strange. Of my weekly podcast lineup, this is the one I look forward to, most look forward to. The hosts are engaging, have great chemistry, and are open-minded. My husband, as a scientist, is more skeptical than I, but still listens to me, uh, still listens with me and allows us to discuss our beliefs about the weird and strange. Love that. I'm always looking forward to Wednesday. P.S. My husband would also like me to add that next time the boys team with Manscaped to add in the character of Sasquatch. (laughs) All right. Listen, first of all, I hope that husband bought some of the Manscaped products, but I'm guessing he did it. Because you know that Manscaped is no longer affiliated with the Bigfoot Collectors Club. And as a result, people like you and your husband killed Uncle Dickie. And you guys remember, oh, Uncle Dickie did not survive this year. And that no, is your he is fault. dead. He is dead. Fortunately, Man, I love he- that. I love that comment. I love I love yeah. bringing the, the strange and, and, and mysterious back into people's lives. And you know what? I love when when especially if you're like partner or your loved one is somewhat skeptical or has a more scientific approach. And yet you can still sort of, you know, delve into some of these topics. And, and I just love that. That's so great. Thank you so much for that, that wonderful comment and review. Hey, yeah. take a, take a cue from which Kiki and her scientist husband, first of all, by the way, that's like a 1960s sitcom right there. <laughs> Fully. Uh, if you if your marriage or relationship is have, is going through a rough patch, just throw on BCC Sit down and talk about the weird shit that we're discussing. It might bring you closer together. How could it not? Mm-hmm. Well, boys and girls and our little club scouts, I'm looking down here, of course, at uh, the puppies that are at my feet. Uh, grab a dog. Put them at your feet because it's time, Riley, for some... BCC Wow, I love even, that the dogs joined in. Yeah, even that. Violet got in on that one. Uh, well, I, this is a BCC news first, everybody. Uh, y'all, because this involves somebody in this podcast who's now making legit headlines. What? They? Who could it be? <laughs> Definitely not me. Could be Riley, but no, yeah. it's Bryce Johnson. Bryce? Why don't you read us which headline popped up on our Bigfoot Collectors Club Google alert last night? Sure. Uh, This is exciting stuff. And by the way, uh, I guess spoilers for Expedition Bigfoot. 
Yes, yes. And you know what, Witch Kiki? Here's some science your husband might like. Expedition Bigfoot Investigation Yields Unexpected DNA Results by Josh Milliken, as Dread Central reports it. Uh, remember when I told you just wait till you get the hear about those eDNA results from the tree structure in southeastern Kentucky? Well, Mm -hmm. the results are in. I'll just go ahead and read this thing. The Expedition Bigfoot team collected surprising DNA evidence while in the field searching for the most famous and elusive cryptid, Bigfoot. Throughout their two-month journey, the team, Bryce Johnson, Dr. Maria Mayer, Russell Acord, and Ronnie LeBlanc, used the latest and advanced technologies to narrow their search within the designated target zones, beginning in Kentucky and then switching mid-expedition to Washington State. As the investigation intensified, Possible evidence that Bigfoot may be in the area began to surface. Vocalizations, unexplained structures commonly described by Bigfoot witnesses, and massive 16-inch footprints that no man could have left behind. During filming deep in the wilderness of Kentucky's Appalachian Highlands, eDNA, collected from soil under a massive tree structure found by Dr. Mayer and LeBlanc, produced surprising and exciting results. Environmental DNA is the genetic material naturally left behind by animals in the environment. Scientific analysis of these samples helps generate a snapshot of any living creatures. This revolutionary new tool is increasingly used to confirm the presence of elusive animals. Quote, this scientific expedition may have finally taken one of the world's greatest mysteries out of the pages of legend and lore and into reality, said Dr. Mayer. Uh, Miroslava Mungi Ramos, project manager at the UCLA California Environmental DNA Program, has analyzed the eDNA sample from the tree structure. The following are her observations. We received soil samples from your team and took a few months to get them processed. What we're looking at are the unique organisms that we were able to identify. Um, Our software does what's known as metabar coding. So it'll match up all the DNA sequences that we were able to detect and try to cross-reference them with the thousands of genomes that have been published, and it's pretty common that when we're looking at environmental DNA samples, we detect humans because there's going to be human traces almost everywhere. But what I found very interesting was that, yes, we have detected human DNA in these areas, but we're still seeing different primate DNA. Um, There wasn't just one human primate. There are several different primates, some sort of primate relative that exists in the data. Pantroglodyte is a species of chimpanzee which you would not see in the areas you're at. It's a real head scratcher. It's important to note that the higher the detection, the more confidence we can say that whatever organism, whatever taxonomy we're looking at was apparent in the area. And in this case, we're looking at the pan genus or the chimpanzee genus. There's 3,000 reads. The technology is constantly improving. It's getting more accurate. And now it just really comes down to making sure we have enough samples and we're confident that whatever we're studying is a unique species. Dr. Mayer expanded on this unique discovery. Quote, finding what appears to be a very large structure seemingly created with intention and requiring great strength as well as foresight is interesting. It is not unheard of for primates to stack sticks or rocks, although for me the jury's still out as to what that was. There's no guesswork in science. It's great that eDNA was collected from that site that may give us the answers we are looking for. 
The process of describing and confirming a new species is difficult. DNA is an absolutely essential in the scientific community to prove that something is a new or recognized species. You have eyewitness accounts from tens of thousands of people who say they've encountered Bigfoot. Some coming forward with blurry videos and photographs, but that's just not going to cut it. What we need is indisputable genetic evidence to really put this mystery to rest. And there's no doubt in my mind that we are headed in the right direction. What does this all mean? Did they find Bigfoot? Expedition Bigfoot is currently streaming on Discovery+. Plus. The series finale, New Discoveries, featuring the newly found DNA evidence, premieres on Sunday, March 28th. And that's it. Bryce, I don't know whether to applaud you for the scientific discovery or for the fact you finally made it through a single news story. (laughs) But either way, buddy, congratulations. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how long have you known about this? I've known about it for a little while. I mean, uh, I was actually, uh, and you'll get to see it on March 28th, but I was on the phone uh, with Miroslava Ramos, uh, Ramos uh, the project manager, and we were talking about the results. And, you know, she was, she, it was like she said, it was a head scratcher. It shouldn't be there, right? She's getting the pan genus pan troglodyte, uh, which is just mind blowing, right? So they're detecting primate DNA uh, and getting quite a few hits on it as well 3,000. And, uh, and, you know, the other struggle, the other eDNA samples that we took, right had some of those same markers this was the only one that had pantroglodyte and uh it's just Mm. it's fascinating and and i feel like finally for once you know it's like there's you know so much of the dna thing with bigfoot has been sullied or um misrepresented or done by a not so reputable establishment and i mean this is by the books this is about as by the books as you can get and they're saying and fully documented too. fully documented the whole process of you guys doing this that's exactly right and they're saying there's something that is not really supposed to be here some sort of primate relative now remind me you may have mentioned in the article so forgive me was this nest remind me this nest was in kentucky correct yes this was was from the tree structure this was that tree structure that ronnie maria found and they took soil samples by that yep and they also took i guess we'll find out in the show but i didn't they also take edna samples from a footprint in kentucky yeah that one in washington that one in washington and they took one near a cave i believe in kentucky got it got Um, it and those came back with some pretty interesting results as well. But but we went with this highest yield one uh, from the tree structure because none of those other two samples had that pantroglodyte, which is just really not supposed to be there. And that's what mm-hmm. is found in chimpanzees. And yeah, it's a humans. A, 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 an extinct humans? species of not chimpanzee. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Right. So that's interesting because aren't chimp? I mean, here's me being a total armchair scientist, not knowing any facts. Um, but aren't I mean, like chimpanzees are pretty closely related to human beings, right? I think they're like just a few chromosomes away yeah. or something. Yeah, I believe so closer I'm, than almost any other primate, other than orangutan. I believe it might be. I'm not sure about that either. But I think it's pretty up close. There. Yeah, and I think you're both I, right. Yeah, that makes me wonder if then if like. Old Biggie's just as closely related, if not more so, to a chimpanzee, which makes him closely related to us as well. Yeah, yeah. If this is, in fact, what this is from. It's strange. 
now, will you talk about what you do with this information on the show? Or, you, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to a- ask too many questions that are spoilers. But No, like, no, what, it's okay, yeah. What this do you is... do with this information now that we have it? Well, this will serve as a, as a, as a foundation cornerstone for more eDNA samples to come in. Because, you know, like she was saying, there's no published genome in their records that say this is a Bigfoot, you know, because no Bigfoot is ever brought in. So when, when you're really sort of collecting, you know, eDNA samples, if we can, if, if more people have eDNA analyzed and it comes back with hits of this pantroglodyte in areas where it's just not supposed to be, that's, that's going to be some pretty, you know, it, it, it's a compounding effect, right? It's just, you need to add layer and layer on top of it. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's pretty pretty. Pre, it's a pretty big breakthrough. I feel That's, like in the in yeah the world of Bigfoot yielded way better results than when they did it for Loch Ness. Yeah, Loch yeah. Ness. They got eel. They right. didn't get any dinosaur stuff. You know what I mean? Right. right. They didn't get so plesiosaur or any sort of weird reptilian thing they couldn't identify. Everything in Loch Ness was pretty much identifiable. So. Also, Isn't that weird too of, that the didn't get a lot of dead sheep either. You know, I I'm had I, this is going a little off the subject, but I've been really sort of like thinking a lot about the just the idea of pan and how this I mean, how this Latin name for this species of chimpanzee, pan troglodyte. And then, you know, is and I was thinking about Hellier and how they were sort of, you know, summoning and doing that ritual of of the god pan. And then there was the pandemic. And it's just like, mm. it's, it's so interesting. I don't know. Maybe I'm, it's a stretch, but I'm just like, it feels like this, this pan, this nature spirit is sort of making its way back into the fold of, of human existence. I don't know. It's very strange to me. Mm. So wow, that's... Greg and Dana Newkirk are responsible for the pandemic. <laughs> it's Uh-oh. all coming together, man. Uh-oh. It's all coming together. I'm not going to yeah, say there that. It is. But... <laughs> hmm. I, it's funny because I was about to ask you, Bryce, like how does this um, change or make you think about the, the difference between interdimensional kind of ideas versus like a, you know, flesh and blood missing link kind of thing. But then when, when you went with, you know, the pan summoning, I was like, well, maybe that question's already answered. Oh, but- yeah. No, it's interesting, right? It's like, hey, I mean, this is, you know, when you're getting these type of hits off of DNA, this does not uh, allude to a, a ghost. You know, we don't get DNA samples right. from ghosts, but... But I don't know, you know, the na- the native indigenous people of this of this continent had always felt that, uh, you know, it, it moved in two worlds, the, the the spirit world and our material world. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess nature does move in the spirit world in a lot of ways, too. So yeah. if it is just a creature of nature, that sort of also makes sense, you know. But what it about does. the orbs over its head? What yeah. are the orbs? What are the orbs? Maybe it's some weird bioluminescence <laughs> thing it gives off. I don't know. What? Why does Bigfoot keep getting weirder and weirder? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That's really exciting, though, Bryce. This is like pretty yeah, monumental. Dude. Oh, thanks. I'm. A, yeah. I was totally stoked about it. I was just like, when 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 we none of us were expecting that to come back like that. I mean, we it, that that's what one of the great moments in the show is when you're just kind of like. You know, we're like, okay, we're we got the eDNA results back. We're gonna talk to this scientist. She said she found some pretty interesting things, and you're like, oh, okay, I wonder what she found. And then she's like, yeah, it's uh, not quite human, not quite primate, a primate relative. You start hearing those key words, and you're just like, what? Mm. 
insane. Yeah, and this is better than inconclusive or we can't identify it. You know, this gives you something to hang your hat on. You know what I mean? At least. Yeah. That's really exciting stuff, dude. Congratulations. Thank Um, you. Has there been any, like, response yet from the Bigfoot cryptozoological world? Have you noticed anything online today? No, I haven't. I, you know, I'm really interested to to see what... uh, you know, Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, who has, you know, the world's largest track cast collection has to say about it because he's always been a big proponent of eDNA studies and moving the ball forward on, on, on DNA analysis for these. So I don't know. I'd like to, I'd like to hear it. I'd like to hear what the Bigfoot community has to say. Well, we're standing by, well, I mean, you know, I'm checking my Twitter and Instagram, but uh, we'll see, you know, we'll see. Awesome. We can't wait. Wow. Well, we're going to move from Bigfoot over to Yeti in the second half of the show and talk about what evidence was collected uh, 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 for Yeti over the years um, in part two of our deep dive of the Abanabobol, Abanabobol, the Abanabols. <laughs> do it. Abanabolo. <laughs> the Abanabol snowman. The Abominable snowman. Um but before we do that, I want to, we've been doing a lot of Bigfoot talk on the show lately. I, I've been in the real mood to to do that. So I've been pushing Harry Hominids on the show lately, especially with Expedition Bigfoot happening and with good reason with you guys getting results like this. But you know what? I miss, I miss, I miss UFOs. I miss what's going on up in the skies. Yeah. Um, Something that we can't use eDNA so far to help us decipher. Uh, so why don't we do this, boys? It's been a minute. Let's round up the wagons. Let's let's get the chuck wagon open. Let's start uh, roasting some beans oh, yeah. over the fire. Uh-huh. Uh, round uh-huh. it up, get a stump, sit on it. Because, guys, it's time for MUFON UFO Roundup! Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I went to the MUFON website to their uh, UFO Stalker, which is a live map of recent uh, UFO sightings and then recent, uh, basically, some of these sightings didn't happen so recently, but people have recently reported them as well. So you get a little mix of both. Uh, So I picked three that I thought were intriguing. Bryce, you're going to help me out uh, by speaking as the witnesses here. Great. Uh, I'm going to slip into my conspiracy voice and mm. here we go with the first sighting. El Paso, Texas, February 25th, 2021. Distance, 21 to 100 feet. Altitude, treetop. Duration, one minute. Features, wings, other. Flight path, straight line path. Path with directional change. Shape, cylinder. While seated at an outdoor cafe... I saw a silvery item the size of a man's hand, six to eight inches, past 60 feet above me, leaving a small vapor trail. I saw it from my right as I faced north. The item was traversing from south to north at approximately 35 to 40 miles per hour. That's just a guesstimate. The item shot up like an airplane, started to have a thicker, longer, silvery trail behind it and disappear along with the vapor trail. What? Do not recall hearing anything out of the ordinary. Item description, silvery. It reflected in the sun. No clouds that day. Shape cannot be defined like a small tube 
but I do recall that it appeared to have small swooped back wings. A drone? I worked with drones in the military. This had no sound. It was extremely quick for its size, left a vapor trail, and completely disappeared from my view. I know of no current-use drone that can do this, military or commercial. I am sorry I do not have any video or pictures. It happened quickly and was not prepared to see the object. This reminds me of those rods. Remember when rods were a thing? Hell yeah, dude. Mm-hmm. A little tube, tubular, totally tubular, totally tubular, little tubular rods, man. Around. <laughs> I don't From know. Outer space. What does this thing sound like to you? Uh, a, a drone, I guess. I don't know. What is this? I don't know. It's weird when it leaves a vapor trail, but then the she said the va- or he or she said the vapor trail disappeared. And it's also small, which is weird. Maybe they're miniature UFOs. Maybe it's like a tiny little, 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 little tiny, tiny little people. From a tiny little planet. Just don't like a no UFO. <laughs> a a UFO. <laughs> a UFO. It's like a, a tiny UFO. UFO you know? uh, yeah, yeah a this is one. weird. It did have wings. I'm going to probably say drone. I don't know. No sound, though. I, I feel like you have to say that with Porter a, was in the military. A cigarette. You know? UFO. A UFO. Uh, <laughs> look in the sky. Look in the sky, oh. lady. It's a UFO, uh, huh? <laughs> yep. Get out of here, deal. Frenchman. <laughs> Uh-oh. Okay, okay. Well, everybody calm all down. Right, all this right. is the United Nations. Please. Behave yourselves. <laughs> all right, here we go on to the next report. Marysville, California, on July 5th, 2020. Distance 21 to 100 feet. Altitude 500 feet or less. Duration 15 minutes. Features, wings, other, unknown, flight path, path with directional change, shape, triangle. At around 2.30 on the 5th of July, 2020, we were finishing off the 4th of July night event. We were having a cigar and smoke break. I noticed a big cloud in the sky. It seemed to me moving with a glow behind it. As the big cloud came across the roof of our house, I was looking eastward at the cloud. I noticed the cloud had a glowing object behind it, as if it were cloaking the environment in order to conceal it. As it passed from east to west, I noticed it was at least 150 feet wide, enormous size, and had three small crafts flying with it out front. I realized there were at least three small crafts with the mothership all flying in order. Description of mothership, 60 feet long wingspan, 100 feet Small crafts, smaller than an F-16. Now, this here is what we call in ufology a doozy. (laughs) A mothership hidden in a cloud that's 100 plus feet long with three other crafts flying around it. This is on the 5th of July of this year in Marysville, California, not too far from where we're recording this episode. This is fucking cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That rules. Bryce, you've heard about UFOs disguising themselves in clouds or creating fake clouds to float around in, right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, that's a trip, dude. And uh, sort of using the environment to create, like, yeah, it's so strange. To conceal Weather cloaking. It. Weather yeah. cloaking. Yeah. That's a good one. Very surreal. Very cool. Love that. This one is rad, and it lasted for 15 minutes. 
I guess we didn't get any pictures or video, but uh, so pretty cool. Guys, 15 minutes. Come on. Yeah. Come on, Somebody's guys. got a phone. Anything over five minutes requires a video or photograph. <laughs> yeah, say. there's no excuse at that point. Anything over 50 seconds. Um, all right, let's move on to the next one. The last one out of this batch. Valdosta, Georgia, on March 5th, 1997. <laughs> Distance, 21 to 100 feet. Altitude, treetop. Duration, one hour and 30 minutes. Features, none. Flight path, hovering, then path. Shape, circle. I initially saw a bright light through our windows, and it was moving toward our house. It looked like the lights of an airplane, but the lights were low in the sky. I said to my parents, what is that? As the lights moved toward our house, I stepped out on the front porch with my dad, and we looked up. And there Y'all was on the front porch? We I told the, you to get on the batch porch. No, Don't get on, on that front porch. We was on the front porch with my dad. Like Are you having school. brunch on the front porch again? <laughs> now, I thought that porch was American, not French. Hey, it's just the, it's called the Pachy. You said, you said French, I said French. Potato, potato, eh? We invented brunch. Well, anyway, I'll just I'll just keep on moving. I stepped out on the front porch with my dad, and we looked up, and there was a stationary flying saucer of a dark color sitting just above us. It was only about 30 feet away from us, and it hovered with no sound or heat. It was about the size of a small car. While it was dark outside, it was close enough to see clearly. The lights on the craft were pointing out from the front of the saucer, just like we do in order to see where we're going. So the lights did not shine in our faces or down towards us or the ground, but in front of the craft. I didn't see any designs or markings on the craft, as it just appeared to be a smooth metal surface. Since the craft stopped just above us, it felt like whoever or whatever was inside realized we were looking at it. And they were looking at us too. I got chills as I looked at it. After about 30 seconds to a minute, it flew away towards the sea, still low in the sky. After the event, I remember thinking that I'd like to see it again. While it was scary at first, there was something comforting about it. I still remember it clearly to this day, but I don't discuss it with many people. It wasn't until I recently watched Hangar 1 that I decided to speak out. First of all, I love that this person relates to the uh, the headlights of the UFO. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just pointing out from the front, yeah. just like we do. You know, just you to know see where we're we going. Headlights. <laughs> we're yes. just like you know, you get a little flashlight or something, too. just point out a light, just like we do. Um, and I do want to say, just as I, I did not make a mistake, the the duration does say one hour and thirty minutes. I think they entered it in incorrectly um, mm. because she says it was only a minute to 30, 30 seconds to a minute. So, so it should be one minute thirty seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm telling you, I'm looking at it, and I can count. This is one hour thirty minutes. Okay. Um, but this is fun. I love a classic flying saucer. I love a saucer with with porthole lights. Um, I think this is very cool. I just wish they'd seen some, uh, passengers inside. Yeah. Good read, Bryce. Enjoyed that. Yes. Excellent. I was really, I was, I I could see that character. Oh, good. Good. Nice. Excellent. Excellent. The acting classes. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, (laughs) Riley. (laughs) 
Y'all come, y'all come by for brunch on the French porch sometime. <laughs> I was going to say your Zoom acting classes are paying off, Bryce. So oh, well, good, <laughs> good. Money All right, everybody. Spent. We're going to take a break. Uh, obviously, by the way, no guests this week uh, because we're wrapping up the second part of our two-part series uh, on the Abominable Snowman. We'll be right back right after this break. Above Top Secret is like the amp going to 11. It's like, just make that top secret, you know? Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> no, it's above top secret. There's a top to the top. It needs to be above top secret. Why, why don't you just make that top secret? No, oh, you don't yeah. understand. It's okay. above the top secret. It's all about compartmentalization. <laughs> when I was working for the Air Force in 1986... We had a food machine right out in the hall of regular top secret. And in order to get into the above top secret room, you had to get an O. Henry bar three different times. And then it would drop down a file. And, and what would you do with that file? You would eat it, of course. Because if you were found with it, you would be shot and killed. It didn't taste like an O. Henry bar, but that's how you had to get it. Actually, all of the candy bars in that top secret food machine were made of paper. Uh, gentlemen, I, I appreciate uh, all this information, but I thought we were here to talk about UFOs. This is above top secret stuff. You're right. Let's move on. We told you too much. <laughs> oh, okay. Boy. Well, when we last <laughs> left, we need off, guests. When we <laughs> left what happens. <laughs> This is what happens. Now, can't now just you know. leave us alone. Yeah, it's not good. We're left now alone in our rooms. Now you know what uh, our Patreon <laughs> listeners have been dealing with for three years. <laughs> so let's get it back into Yeti. When we uh, left off last week, the year was 1953, and British journalist Ralph Izzard had put together a team of eight men, including two explorers from John Hunt's successful Mount Everest climbing expedition, John Jackson and Tom Stobart, plus a scientist from the Zoological survey of india named biswami biswas and an american expat living in new delhi named gerard russell or gerald russell gerard butler uh who'd made a name for himself after capturing the very first live panda oh their mission return to the himalayas and find irrefutable proof of the abominable <laughs> every time abominable right. abominable <laughs> snowman I've been writing this all day long. I've been saying it for a week, and literally, I, I can't even do it anymore. And let me tell you, I've written Abominable Snowman at least 30 more times in this copy. So get ready, guys, because it's the Abominable Snowman Part 2. The popsicle melts. I said that with a real Kansas accent, by the way. Putting putting the eh instead of the i, popsicle. All right. So, Bryce, you're the only one of us that has hunted a cryptid. What would proof be for you? For me personally, I mean, man, a a close encounter sighting with my own eyes. And yeah, that would, you know what? It would let, I would, okay. To be honest, a triangulation of evidence. I would have to be standing next to somebody I trust, I would see it with my own two eyes. It would walk away or run away. It would leave a footprint, which I would cast. And um, I would also grab some video and photographic evidence. 
Now, what if one of the people standing next to you was me or Riley? Would you trust us to to, to, yeah. to see the same thing you did? Yeah. Now, if you guys reported something completely different, then we got a problem. Hmm. Or do we have a solution? Huh? Ooh. Ooh, high strangeness, maybe? So, I want to set the stage a little bit here. We're now post-World War II, post-Atom Bomb, post-Roswell... We're in Cold War times now, and this is around the time China takes over Tibet, so it's getting harder for foreigners to move around this area. In fact, the Chinese government, even though they had their own Yeti quests, saw the abominable snowman expeditions from the West as covers for espionage. And there's some merit for that, which we'll get into. So it was a difficult time to get permission to navigate the Himalayas in this new Cold War era. The whole ordeal this uh expedition that izzard was leading was being funded by the london daily news in hopes of being the first newspaper to publish the capture of the yeti which up until now had only shown itself in folklore melting tracks and to two western men explorer william hugh knight back in 1903 and n.a tombazi a photographer and fellow of the royal geographical society in 1925 now, that's not to say, of course, that locals hadn't seen this creature for generations. But when it came to explorers coming in from the West, only two men had claimed to see it. And even those sightings were a little sketchy at best. And I think this is a very important distinction from Bigfoot sightings. You know, Yeti is this local legend. It's seen by indigenous people, but very few Westerners actually had encounters. And the and like I said, the ones that we had are sketchy. Now, when we get later into the Bigfoot sightings, that's sort of a different story, but it's weird. This is the tough thing with Yeti, is really, there aren't a lot of eyewitness stories, are there, Bryce? No. No, there are not. So, uh, they're hoping to change that at this time. Uh, In December of 1953, an English biologist named Dr. Charles Stoner... Oh, yeah. Set out in advance of Izzard's team. Now, Stoner was a biologist and former employee of the London Zoo. He, like us, was also a bit of a dreamer and believed the Sherpas when they told him they'd seen the Yeti. One Sherpa he spoke to, Pasong Nima, described the creature he saw. Stoner recounted the tale in a book he wrote after the Daily Mail expedition ended. Well, now I feel like I should do Charles Stoner as English and a stoner. Here we, here we go. <clears throat> the color he described was both dark and light. And the chest looked to be reddish. The Yeti was walking on two legs, nearly as upright as a man. But kept bending down to grub at the ground. He fought for roots. After a time, it saw the watchers and ran off into the undergrowth, still on two legs, but with a (coughs) sidling gait, which he imitated, giving a loud, high-pitched cry heard by all who had been watching it. Puff, puff, give, dear boy. Puff, puff, give. In January of 1954, Stoner found an alleged Yeti trackway and was shown one of the supposed Yeti scalps held as relics in Pangbosh Temple. However... 
Stoner sent samples from the scalp to anatomist Frederick Wood Jones, who quickly figured out that it wasn't a scalp at all, but assembled from the skin of a non-primate animal uh, and believed to come from a shoulder and refashioned into the shape of a scalp. Regardless, Stoner remained faithful to the idea of the abominable snowman. In his initial reports, he wrote, I am, shall we say, 95% certain the snowman exists. Izzard's team left Kathmandu at the end of January 1954 and began a months-long quest. They carried a flag with them, two Yeti prints on a field of blue. Centered between the tracks was the face of Bing, the abominable snow baby, a creation by cartoonist Desmond Doig for the Calcutta Statesman. A plushie of Bing accompanied the team as their mascot. Izzard pointed out to the press that the blue and white color scheme was an intentional reference to the United Nations because the entire team was made up of people from five different nations all working together, which means that in the eyes of New World Order conspiracy theorists, Bing is like a satanic symbol. Oh. I love nice. Bing, and I need more info on him. I could not find this, these comics online. I looked up the Calcutta Statesman. I googled Bing the, uh, the Abominable Snow Baby. Um, there's one uh-huh. photo of him in Joshua Bluebus's book, and he's really tiny in the picture. Uh, but he's like totally the prototype of Bumble in Rudolph, and he looks like the main character from that animated movie Abominable that came out uh, recently. I mean, I think he's like the first cute Bigfoot, and I am in love with him, and I need – I know we have librarians listening to this with resources that we don't have. Somebody out there, listeners, please find me a copy of one of these being in the abominable snow snow baby uh, comic strips, please. A worthy quest. Yes. So Team Bing, which is what I will be calling Izzard's Expedition. Uh, I want team. By the way, want Bing T-shirts. I think BCC should go all out with Bing merch. I want to make this podcast solely devoted to Bing from now on. <laughs> <laughs> they caught up with Stoner and Namchi Bazaar on February 11th. So from there, they basically checked out different Yeti hotspots, hiking to areas where the monster's tracks had been previously spotted by the Swiss in 1952 and a location of a supposed Yeti attack in 1949 and a location where the Yeti had allegedly killed some yaks. But they didn't really turn up anything. They saw some bears. They found some poop that they thought could have belonged to a Yeti and even followed a pair of tracks for eight miles that joined with a second set, taking note of the way the animals seemed to avoid man-made dwellings and villages, could drop to all fours, and slide down slopes on their rumps. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) That reminds me... Albert, Albert Osman. Osman. Yeah, yeah, buddy. We're synced up now. Yeah. Oh, Remember that they, he said they saw the kids playing a game of how far they could jump on their rumps. Yep. <laughs> it's a little Dr. Susie, but I'll allow it. Yeah. Uh, that being said, Izzard later admitted that the tracks were about four days old and half melted. All in all, the proof of the abominable snowman evaded Team Bing. Quest concluded in May with paltry evidence to go on. Yet, Stoner clung firmly to his faith in the Yeti. He wrote in his book, I for one am completely convinced, I tell you. I rather favored the possible chaotic ending to the story, the 
opened door of the cage, the abominable snowman taking a, a last look round the quarters and then shuffling off into the distance in imitation of the fade-out of a Charlie Chaplin film. <laughs> I think it's quicks, quixotic. I don't know how to pronounce that word, but... Chaotic! Chaotic? <laughs> quixotic? Rodendodrum? Rodendodrum, of course. That would be ridiculous. But, you know, <laughs> history proves that if I ever try to correct you, I'm always wrong, so I don't know. But uh, but he liked the idea that, like, eh, it's still a mystery. He's he's the kind of guy that likes uh, an open door ending to a horror movie, you know, uh, which is frustrating for most people. But Charles Stoner loves it because he's completely high out of his mind by the end of the movie. Exactly. And, you know, he just had a good time. <laughs> what if nothing means anything, man? Hey, man. <laughs> So what he exists, I monster, tell you, dude. Real monsters, us, bro. Where the Daily Mail hunt failed, others hoped to succeed. Russia was funding quests to find their own snowman, the Mink of Siberia. Yeah, and the Swiss had been funding Yeti quests of their own as well. Despite rising geopolitical tensions in the area, it was the golden age of the abominable snowman. Now was the time to get in on the game. Over in America, a Texas oil man appropriately named Tom Slick had been fascinated by stories <laughs> of... Yeah, dude, no. this guy's awesome. Get ready. <laughs> He'd been fascinated by stories of the Yeti for years. Slick, who I can't believe is, hasn't come up on this podcast before, was a pretty fascinating guy himself. Well-educated at Exeter in Princeton, well-connected and rich... He was part of a group of concerned internationalists that regularly gathered to casually discuss world topics, a group that included Jimmy Stewart, Dwight Eisenhower, Albert Schweitzer, Winston Churchill, oh and John gosh. Foster Dulles. Some now, heavy company. Yeah, not only was he a rancher, a lot of Jimmy's in there. Because, hey guys, what do we do about uh about communist China? I don't know. It's I'm a concerned I, I, internationalist. You sound more like Owen Wilson than Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> he could be there too. I mean, yeah, yeah, Owen Wilson was kind of our generation's Jimmy Stewart for a minute, if you think about it. Uh, after all this talk about the Yeti, what's the big deal? Uh, not only was he a rancher, oilman, and founder of Slick Airways and friend of Howard Hughes, he was a moderate Republican who railed against American isolationism and exceptionalism and believed that America and the communist bloc should team up to create a world police force that would prevent wars. He also advocated for denuclearization. Generally speaking, he was a big time advocate for world peace and the advancement of science. He thought the scientific community was too cautious and believed that they should be digging deeper into the great mysteries of the world. I like this guy. I was going to yeah. say, as I was writing this, I was like, this is totally Bryce. <laughs> Think of him as a sort of, sort of like that era's Robert Bigelow, a rich businessman with a big imagination who wanted to bring the realm of the unknown into, into light. In 1956, Slick had ventured to India with the hopes of finding more clues to the abominable snowman and with a $25,000 bounty reward offer in his back pocket by Life magazine to get a good photo of the Yeti. Oh, wow. Slick, I'm, that's great. I love it because like you have to remember, so all this stuff's really been happening in Europe. You know what I mean? It's made international news. The United States 
clearly knows all about the abominable snowman, but America really hadn't gotten in on the game. Um, and so now life magazine is like, get us, get us a picture, please. Yeah. 25 so, G in today's money. That's like 25 million. Yeah. It's <laughs> quick close. math. Yeah. I think we can, there is a site you can convert it if you want to look it up and find yeah, out for us. Um, yeah. So $25 million for a picture of the Yeti. Uh, <laughs> So Slick was able to get funding for helicopters and dogs to aid the search and teamed up with an Irish game hunter named Peter Byrne, who in 1955 had expressed interest in finding the abominable snowman himself. Byrne was a former member of the Royal Air Force and had been previously employed with a British tea company. But that lifestyle fell apart after Indian independence and Byrne turned towards game hunting. Their connection came through a referral by another American in, in, in India at the time, anthropologist Carlton Kuhn, who was doing research for a project for the U.S. Air Force called Faces of India. Now, Kuhn was going around the region and taking photos of the different people in different regions so hypothetical downed Air Force pilots could learn to identify where they had crash-landed based on the people that they saw. Huh, interesting. Um, yeah, and also kind of a good way to, like, take stock of this area for America. It's kind of like, again, espionage is sprinkled in all of this stuff. You think you could do that same game for just like the different states of America? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. We should do that. That should be our BCC project. That would be, a fun that would be game. really fun. I love that. Um, so uh, Americans, you know, weren't as familiar with this area as Russia, China, and Britain, the Himalayas. And they had a lot of catching up to do in the new geopolitical landscape of the Cold War. Kuhn was also a consultant for Life magazine and was asked by the editor what he thought of Slick. Kuhn gave them his honest opinion, telling them that he was a well-meaning man and a nice guy but he had no clue what he was doing in the area and was inadequately prepared for this venture. Life withdrew its reward offer. What? But, yeah, but Slick and Byrne plowed forward on their own expedition anyway. This fucking guy Coon goes in there and fucking throws a monkey. Yeah, he really he shit. he sets the guys up and then totally sells Tom <laughs> Slick out. You know, I'm sure these guys are all very competitive with one another. I'm you know who knows just a big pissing contest off the top of Mount Everest. Um, yeah. So cryptozoologist, cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman has pointed out that Slick may have had ulterior motives to the hunt, or at least what video game players like myself refer to as a side quest. It is widely <laughs> speculated that Slick had CIA ties, considering his connections, and with China and Russia close by, these cryptozoological hunts could have actually been veiled acts of espionage, with right. Slick and Byrne reporting back to their home countries what the lay of the land was looking like. Hmm. In fact, China cracked down on entries into Tibet for Yeti expeditions because they were convinced they'd be letting foreign spies into their territory. Carlton Kuhn was obviously working for American intelligence and uh, and another famous because he did so uh, in the army and another and was reporting to them for this uh, for this Faces of India project. And another famous explorer and cryptid researcher, Ivan T. Sanderson, also had connections to the British military intelligence after being assigned to them in World War II. The theory makes sense. 
Slick goes to the Slick goes to the Himalayas to hunt the Yeti, and while he's there, reports back to Uncle Sam on what Russia and China are doing in the area. Yeah, makes total sense. Now that's not to say that men like Slick, Byrne, and Sanderson weren't genuinely interested in proving the existence of the abominable snowman. It's quite the opposite. Throughout the late 50s, Slick spent upwards of $100,000, or $100 million in Bryce math, yep. <laughs> uh, for today's Bryce math, for Byrne and him to conduct three different expeditions of varying sizes. The largest was in 1958, when they were accompanied by the Team Bing expedition veteran Gerald Russell, the guy who helped capture a panda, and a unit of 100 men. They were accompanied by blue tick hounds, special guns loaded with tranquilizers, and at one point even made the cringeworthy decision to darken their skins and disguise themselves as locals, hoping a Yeti would be more likely to approach them, a tactic that even Peter Byrne deemed seemingly ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah, they were like, because the theory was they don't present themselves to Westerners, let's all dress up like the locals, and they went as far as like literally like tanning their faces. Yeah, going in a black face and darkening. It's, you know, come on, people. Uh, During the 1958 expedition, Slick and company ventured into Pongbosh Temple to take another look at that Yeti scalp that Charles Stoner had analyzed and got a gander at a supposed mummified Yeti hand, which the monks were reluctant to part with because it was a sacred relic. Slick and Byrne and Byrne's brother returned for a subsequent hunt in 1959, a much smaller affair, and Byrne managed to steal some finger bones from the mummified hand and swap them out with human bones. Not cool, Byrne. Well, he claims that Now he's got the curse. Yeah. He claims that he got it all checked out and it was fine. Like the story got out and he's like, no, 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 no. They let me, they let me. I just (laughs) gave them some human bones in return to just hold its place. But I think the dude totally, uh, they said that he ingratiated himself with the monks. He basically like, I think got the monks drunk. And then when they were all asleep, he snuck into the room with the hand, swapped out a couple fingers. You know what I mean? Cause like, how do you, how do you present it? Like, so, um, I've got some finger bones with me. Um, Oh, I mean, what an asshole, but also what a great story. But it gets better because according to the story, the bones were smuggled back to America by Jimmy Stewart, who hid them in his wife Gloria's suitcase buried beneath her lingerie where he thought the customs wouldn't dig to look. Okay, indulge me here. I'm going to be a customs agent and you're going to be Owen Wilson, the Jimmy Stewart of today. Fair enough. What? What? What is this? Well, that's just my uh, wife, Gloria's suitcase. Uh, Nothing to see there, boys. Uh, There's not a... No, no, it's fine. It's fine. Oh, that's just some uh, anniversary gift for my wife. You don't want to unfold that. Hey, guys, let's just get together sometime and I'll smoke a sweet doobie. (laughs) That's all I wanted. (laughs) that's great one question no further questions the The finger bones were eventually identified as human all the physical bits of evidence from slicks expeditions turned out to be from snow leopards humans bears or other known animals in the region again the yeti if it truly existed eluded capture once again 1959 saw China cracking down on the Tibetan uprising, the Dalai Lama fled the country, and the borders along Nepal were closed. Between restricted access and constant disappointment, Western hopes for finding the abominable snowman were fading like the morning snow. However, 
Americans were in luck because strange activity in the Pacific Northwest hinted to the possibility of a hairy monster in the U.S.'s own backyard. In 1958, a cat skinner for the Granite Logging Company and Wallace Brothers Logging Company, Jerry Crew, reported that members of his logging crew had been harassed by an unseen menace in Northern California at one of their work sites in Bluff Creek. Over the past few years, stories had been spreading between loggers of job sites being vandalized by a clandestine perpetrator who left behind large, human-like footprints in the earth. Canadian journalist John Green, who had investigated the Ruby Creek Sasquatch incident, which we discussed a few weeks ago in BCC 148 with Russell Acord, connected the dots between these mysterious tracks and the stories of Sasquatch he had been researching up in Canada. He traveled to Bluff Creek to investigate the worksite vandalisms where he met Ivan T. Sanderson, and during their investigations, the name Bigfoot was entered into the American lexicon. The rest is history and a story for another deep dive for another day. But it was during this period that Sanderson, a former British explorer turned American citizen, author, and scientific radio and TV personality, coined the term ABSMery or abominable snowmanery to signify the serious study of these large, hairy, bipedal cryptids. He would convince his friend Tom Slick, who had recently failed to procure a Yeti, to fund expeditions to find America's very own abominable snowman. As for the Yeti, back in the Himalayas, at least one more expedition of the Golden Age would take place, this time assembled by Sir Edmund Hillary, who was one of the two men to first reach the summit of Mount Everest during Colonel John Hunt's Everest expedition, and who had also accompanied Eric Shipton's uh, expedition, from which we got the iconic Shipton footprints photos that we talked about last week. Edmund Hillary was interested in returning to the Himalayas to study the effect of low-oxygen environments on the human psyche, which he thought could provide important data in the Rocket Age. But Hillary also wanted to follow up on a nagging, dangling plot thread from his earlier adventures. All abominable. Hillary wrote in the New, in the New York Times... I believe there is sufficient evidence to warrant a closer look at the maker of these tracks. Hillary recruited beloved zoologist Martin Perkins, director of Chicago's Lincoln Park Zoo, to lead the expedition, which was funded by the World Book Encyclopedia. The team consisted of a handful of scientists and over 150 porters. It also included journalist Desmond Doig, the cartoonist who created Bing, the abominable Yay. snow baby. One, and who also, in all of it, just basically complained the entire time about how hard it was to hike. There were all these, like, <laughs> artist types, they said. There were more, like, arty types on this expedition, and none of them could hack it. And people were, like, quitting right and left. Um, I think Doig hung, hung in there, but he was just like, oh, my God, my feet are killing me. <laughs> and also, what made it worse was that Edmund Hillary was like, like, let's really go to the high places where it's hard to breathe. That's what I want to, that's where I want to go. So all these dudes who are like us, you know, we're just like, oh, this is horrible. I'm going to stay at base camp and draw. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, exactly. Uh, one notable figure who was invited but did not join was Eric Shipton, who was tempted but instead ventured off to Patagonia. The Hillary Perkins team set off from Kathmandu in September of 1960 and basically repeated the same discoveries as their predecessors. They discovered tracks, which Sherpas claimed to belong to the Yeti, 
But as they followed them, they shrank in size and were recognizable as dog or wolf prints. Oh, weird. Yeah, Shape, one of the scientists in the Yeti. Yeah, well, here we go. One of the scientists in the crew, Larry Swan, explained the diminishing diminishing size of the trackway as a result of changing altitude. Above 18,000 feet, snow did not necessarily melt under sun exposure, but transformed directly into from solid into gas. This resulted in paw marks being elongated into what looked like toes and the tracks widening. But because they hadn't melted, the prints remained sharp. The result? Big footprints. Hmm. The Hillary Perkins team also went to Pengbosh Temple, where they collected samples of the Yeti scalp. I mean, guys, why do you keep doing this to yourselves? It's not a real scalp, but everybody has to make sure. Again and again. And they compared them to samples collected from a sarohide, a goat-like animal. After analysis uh, from Osmond Hill, two sam- the two samples collected were deemed identical. The, 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 the Cero to the quote-unquote Yeti scalp. Hillary's team also took a look at Yeti pelts, uh, shown to them by Sherpas, which were identified as hide belonging to the Himalayan blue bear. They, the expedition ended on November 25th, again in frustration, and with a growing sense that the abominable snowman was a myth, perhaps even a hoax. Some good did come from the Hillary Perkins trip, though. A light was shed on the impoverished villages of the Sherpas and the need for better medicine in the region. The publicity raised money for the area for new schools and helped Sherpas resist the growing communist threat from China. After all of the evidence was gathered and analyzed, each sample of Yeti hair or shin or, or skin or bone identi- were all identified as known animals. Hillary publicly concluded, We do not think the Yeti exists. Larry Swan stated, it's been a fascinating story, and I hate to be the one to destroy it. He later added, Human insistence cannot transcend nature and its laws. But pop culture sure can. The golden age of expeditions had ended, but the abominable snowman certainly lived on in mass media, arguably gaining even more popularity in film and TV throughout the 60s and 70s as Bigfoot's popularity exploded after the Patterson-Gimlin film debuted. A physical primate may not walk in the highest peaks of the Himalayas, but the mystery of the abominable snowman still clearly remained. Speaking of remains, in 2013, a study was concluded conducted by Brian C. Sykes, a British geneticist and science writer who was a fellow of Wolfson College and emeritus professor of human genetics at the University of Oxford. So, really really stupid guy. (laughs) Um, This uh, study led to headlines that the Yeti may have been in fact an undiscovered species of polar bear. I remember this. Yes, and we actually... Being interested yeah. in Bigfoot, your fa- your family always sends you anything related, and I got this one in droves. Turns yes. out your Yeti's a bear, Bryce. Yeti's a bear. What do you think about that? <laughs> what do you think about that? <laughs> I feel pretty dumb now, don't you? Come on home, Bryce. Your Hollywood <laughs> dreams are over, and the Yeti's dead. <laughs> Quit chasing bears in the forest, Bryce. <laughs> Quit chasing. <laughs> Quit chasing bears and movie stars, Bryce. It's time to come home. Working with a team of specialists, Sykes long fascinated with the legend of the yeti 
gathered 30 samples of alleged Yeti hairs or hair samples attributed to the Yeti, Bigfoot, and other anomalous primates that had been collected over the past 50 years from expeditions like the ones we just talked about. Every hair sample, with the exception of two, were matched with known animal species native to the Himalayas, mostly bears and monkeys, and one hair that was identified as human. As for those two mysterious hair samples, they seemingly had a connection to ancient polar bears, which may have indicated the discovery of a new hybrid species. The report from the Royal Society, written by Brian C. Sykes, Retman A. Mullis, Christoph Hagenmuller, and Terry W. Melton, and Michael Satori, concludes... With the exception of these two samples, none of the submitted and analyzed hair samples returned a sequence that could not be matched with an extant mammalian species, often a domesticate. While it is important to bear in mind that the absence of... What if they were like, although it is important to bear in mind... Eh, eh? Uh-huh, uh-huh. See what I did there? That the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, and this survey cannot refute the existence of anomalous primates, neither has it found any evidence in support. Rather than persisting in the view that they've been rejected by science, advocates in the cryptozoology community have more work to do in order to produce convincing evidence for anomalous primates and now have the means to do so. The techniques described here put an end to decades of ambiguity about species identification of anomalous primate samples and set a rigorous standard against which to judge any future claims. Wow. I mean, they're kind of talking about what you guys did on Expedition Bigfoot with the eDNA. They're like, they're just saying like, look, these hairs and stuff and relics that we've collected, none of that adds up. But still doesn't rule out the existence of yeti it just means that none of this stuff is evidence for it so get to work get some dna samples and try to make try to prove this thing yeah the um, burden exists. of proof is, yep. is on cryptozoologists for sure so even though the study didn't prove the existence of the yeti it didn't rule it out completely lauren coleman saw this as a promise as promising news for cryptozoologists who wanted to use dna to to dna science to help narrow down evidence and find actual proof of these creatures gone are the victorian days of stomping about jungles and forests to shoot animals to prove they exist coleman said we can do verifications through testing for the dna in hair fecal and other physical samples found in conjunction with sightings of and encounters with possible new animals. Follow-ups can then be made in the field to obtain photographic evidence and further blood samples from living animals. Now, since 2014, further analysis of those two hair samples showed that the initial tests didn't really lead to the discovery of a new bear species. The mutation that had led to the match with the polar bear was a damaged artifact. Multiple studies have gone on to support that the two samples in question actually came from ordinary Himalayan brown bears, proving once again, you may long for the Yeti, but those Yetis are always going to let you down. I'm just working, uh, workshopping some BJ in the Shadow Badge lyrics here. So uh, it needs, it's just, it needs work. It's a rough draft, but uh, sure, I think there's sure. something there, guys. So with that, the world remains with no hard DNA evidence that the abominable snowman exists. But the stories remain. The fables are still there to enjoy. The Christmas specials, the animated movies, and the board games. The action figures, 
and the monster movies. The abominable snowman may remain elusive to mankind, but he's always within arm's reach. And that's just where I want him to be. Bravo. Wah! Wah! <laughs> Quiet now, little baby Yeti. <laughs> Bing! Baby Yeti! Wah! So there you go. That's the history of the Yeti. Again, focus less on, um, you know, actual stories of high strangeness and more just putting together a timeline and a context of when uh, the abominable snowman really took off and why he was important, I think, to culture a little bit. You know, I don't know. Michael, well go. told, well researched. This was just so enlightening, man. Way to go. Here, here. Thanks. Yeah. Enlightening how, may I ask? Oh, you know, just God, it's uh, it, it really, you know, well, it, it makes me go from I, it just makes puts everything into context. It's like. It just sort of eludes scientists, the, the the Yeti, you know, but yet people are still seeing him. And, and the, yeah. the, the indigenous people of the Himalayans have always, you know, purported there to be this creature. And, man, it's just. And there's still expeditions going to look today. There were in the 60s and 70s. And what's yeah. interesting and what I really want to do eventually is we're going to do like a, a multi-part deep dive into the history of Bigfoot, you know, yeah, which I think would totally. be totally rad. And this is why I wanted to do the Yeti first, because we it really sort of springboards into, you know, we left Sanderson and Tom Slick and John Green behind, and we'll pick up their story someday in the future. Um, but what's interesting is when all this stuff started to come out that the Yeti may not exist, and none of these samples in the 50s were turning anything up in the early 60s, it actually started to... doubles down in Well, America. it start Yeah, it started... Well... It doubled down, but it it actually started to kill the it started to kill Sanderson's ABS Emory movement in the states because people started to say this stuff was a hoax. Right, and when you got into the mid '60s, Bigfoot was almost kind of forgotten about and and brushed off, and then it's the Patterson Gimlin film that brings it all raging back. Yeah. By the way, what um, a terrible name for someone who tried to get people to take it seriously. I know. It's called you know. ABS Emory or Abominable Snowmanery Institution for the Search. Yeah. Of it, and it didn't. It didn't survive the. The term didn't really survive the early '60s. You know, and it didn't make sense. But 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 again, um, you know, we had the Sasquatch legends here, but mostly in Canada. And it wasn't until the Bluff Creek stuff with Jerry Crew and those loggers that the term Bigfoot was created and then sort of evolved into what we know today. And basically, he was that that all the stuff that was happening in the Pacific North, Northwest, they were referring to it as sort of like Amer they were saying it was like America's abominable snowman, so which didn't crazy. make sense because it wasn't a snowy part of the world. You know? Right. Right. It's just but that's wild, that's what they compared it to. But it is frustrating because when you, with the Yeti, well, I want to hear what Riley, I mean, Riley, what are your thoughts? Because I could ramble on. I've been reading all this all week, but. I mean, honestly, my, my the thing I can't get over in this whole story is that the CIA asset was an oil man named Tom Slick. <laughs> like, did they come up with that backstory like on the plane on the way there? They were like, "Uh, you're from, let's say Texas. You love oil, Tom Slick. All right, you're good to go. Drop him in." He just he's like, "Okay," and he just parachutes out the back of the plane. 
Batman's <laughs> name great. was George <laughs> Herbert Walker Bush. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's, I mean, yeah, I can't, I just, that's, that, I think that's so funny. And um, I love that that's a, a story, a, yet another bizarro story of CIA agents and stuff like using expedition for the abominable snowman as a cover yeah. to get in somewhere it's in the like, words of that's... dan Aykroyd, in uh, uh well, who's the director oh well they're spies like us <laughs> oh my god so <laughs> who's the director of that god damn it i, like I can't remember it. uh my father will kill me because we used oh to watch that movie you all know, the so time. many classic i directed thriller Oh, uh, is it Landis? Yes, thank you, John there Landis. You yes, yeah. So, yeah, I guess like the frustrating thing for me, or the thing that I struggle with, is you know, it it really is easy to read this history of the Yeti and go, okay, it's not real. You know, mm-hmm. it is a mythological creature, mm-hmm. and all these relics are just sort of fashioned to bring myth and folklore to life. It's considered sacred. It's considered a. a spiritual animal or entity but it's not it's not physically real it doesn't really exist you know yeah but and then that makes you go well if this isn't real then maybe bigfoot's not real either all this stuff is all just it's all folklore it's all folklore turned into folklore right <laughs> I'm, I'm still but 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 about, oh go ahead i'll let you but i just about. but but then there's this part of me that lately has been going, okay, well, what if Bigfoot is a spiritual creature? What if it is like a ghost? You know what I mean? What if it yeah. is maybe this Yeti thing does or did exist, but it is like a spirit. It is like a snow fucking poltergeist. And all this stuff is just relics to help interpret it and help, you know, personify yeah. whatever this entity this nature spirit or ghost or whatever the fuck it is, is, and it does exist, you know? Yeah. Because Dude, maybe that's what like, Bigfoot is. I don't know. But then yeah. we're getting DNA of Bigfoot. It's, it's as Bryce would like to say, and round and round we go. And round and round we go because it's not just Yeti in the Himalayas and Bigfoot in the Americas. It's the Russian Mank in, 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 in Asia, the, the, the Orang Almasti. Pen, yeah, the Almasti, in, the Orang Pendek in, in Asia. Uh, the Yowie in Australia, you know, every continent, every country has their own version of this sort of bipedal, half human, half primate creature that comes from their dark forests. And so, yeah, round and round we go, right? Who's to say that this isn't all just, you know, topa magic, you know, where, where the thoughts create the reality. You know, we saw in the Philip experiment that we talked about where they created their own ghost uh, just through uh, a team of researchers' own imaginings. I still think that might have been debunked, but I don't want to pop No, not at all. Um, but yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, who's to say? I'm still not convinced that those, those tracks were just... I didn't understand the science behind... Um, from solid to gas, and then they shrink to small... Well, just, just as... To- Sorry, was he saying ahead. that those Eric Shipton tracks were really just uh, uh, small wolf tracks? But ex- no, those tr- he was speaking specifically about the tracks they found during that expedition, where they were right. following him down the hill, and they looked really big. And then as they followed it for eight miles, they were suddenly like, "Oh, these are like wolf prints." Right. So why did they look so much bigger higher up? And they were just saying that the effect of the altitude is that. The, the 
the, the altitude causes the snow after the animal passes through in the trackway to instead of melt it goes to gas mm. leaving a sharp edge but but the 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 movement from solid form to gas elongates the tracks and makes them look bigger than the than they act the prints actually are right right, right. the ship like, what do you think <laughs> well the, the shipton tracks the thing that everybody says those are um the skeptics say that it's it's a bear they're bear Double tracks step, where yeah. a bear has because bears will walk in their their hind legs will move into their front legs tracks yeah but we know and what that looks they, like and then when they place their tracks upon one another um, it, you know, some people say it looks like what a Yeti footprint would look like. Hmm. Okay. And all the, and, and, the, and we don't have a cast of that print. So all the prints that we have, the cast that we have, like the one that we have in the clubhouse, they're, you know, recreated from that guy who, you know, was like, let me, let me look at these photos and try to get a better look at this thing. Yeah. So well, it's just now tough. that now we could use that 3d scanner print, uh, totally. that scanner that we use on expedition Bigfoot up yep. in the Himalayas, you know, and That'd actually so get cool. some. Um, yeah some really good footprints I, I think the environment is really the enemy in this situation right yeah the elevation sure. the way that this stuff fucks with just the chemicals the snow um being able to get up there being able be able to stay up there i think it's much easier to go to a place like kentucky and go to a place like washington and really stake out and look for something than it is to go to the fucking Himalayas and try to find this thing, all day, every know? day. No, yeah, yeah. there is it, no it, expedition yeti. Let me tell you. I know. mean, <laughs> no, you just read about oh, it. Man, you're, except you're in like a snowy mountain yeah, lodge. No. <laughs> They're on yeah. Everest. Yeah, you know what? I'd still do it. Well, <laughs> and, yeah, I and like you read, you know, when Everest. you do that stuff when you read about Everest about all the like dead bodies that are just up there. Yeah. And I didn't realize until researching this, cause I don't really know much about mountain climbing, but you know, people, the, the, the altitude is so bad and the lack of oxygen is so bad up there that people just die. You yeah, know what I mean? And people just have heart attacks. It's just, the, the, it's, yeah. The summit of Everest is littered with dead bodies and trash. And a lot of people don't realize that actually more people die on the descent rather than the ascent and, uh, you know, on their way back down. And uh, it's it's a deadly trek. And, yeah, it's, it's not just you can't just take a helicopter in and remove the bodies, you know, and you know, when you go up there, it's, you know, it's self-survival at its finest. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, what do you think? Would you guys ever want to attempt climbing Everest? I, I, no, I'm good. Yeah, I don't need I'm to, fine. dude. I'm good. I, I'm I'll, I'll I'll go out and hang out on some mountains, but I don't need to. I don't need to be at the tallest one. Right, no. right. No. That's like no, that big it. dick stick contest. It's like yeah. I've been to the tallest. I've gone through the fastest. And uh, <laughs> by God, by it's God, like, I'll uh, do it again. Tyrion Lannister in Game of Thrones when he goes to the wall, he's like, I want to see what it's like to piss off the edge of the world. You know. <laughs> right. 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 But uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but I don't know. I love Yeti. I still, he's still one of my favorite cryptids. I'm oh, you more love skeptical. Baby Bing. I love Baby Bing. Please <laughs> Baby find Bing. me those drawings if you can. Um, I would, I would love to, love to see those. Um, all right, guys. Any, any final thoughts on the, on the Abominable Snowman before we move on? I couldn't say that I do. I mean, I, you know, I. It sounds like a place that would be very hard for a large mammal to live. Like, what is it eating up there? You know, and just, you know, it, it seems, 
it seems more more firmly pr- planted in the realm of myth and and legend than something sort of more realistically possible i guess see now i my, feel like we goes with it now i feel like when people on our bullshit or believe it list when we say bigfoot and then i say yeti and people are like well if i said bigfoot i believe in yeti you're saying not necessarily the case which i hadn't thought about before you did this deep dive but you really start thinking about the environmental consideration and everything they eat rhododendron bushes my dear boy it's rhododendron it all comes down to the rhododendron that's what you've got to know ah (laughs) all right well we didn't make a believer out of riley i don't think we made a believer out of myself bryce i I hope you're still holding out hope for us um but i want to thank everybody who listened to this two-parter we'll be back next week with the guest it's going to be a very fun episode uh we've already got planned for you guys um until then uh please go to our uh instagram bigfoot collectors club give us a follow follow us on bigfoot pod on twitter follow me at mcmills on instagram uh bryce riley plug your stuff discovery uh expedition bigfoot discovery plus on sunday nights only just a few left to go check it out uh, I'm at Peace Drone on Instagram. That's all for this week. Great. Right. We'll see you next time. Until then, good night. And go get rhododendron. Rhododendron indeed. Bigfoot Collectors Club is produced by Riley Bray. Our theme song is Come Alone by Sun Eaters, courtesy of Lotus Pool Records. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the podcast to more listeners. To support the show, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash Bigfoot Collectors Club and unlock multiple reward episodes every month. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime Podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their case has had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible. And if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday. Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, host of the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Each episode, I explore different sci-fi fantasy genres, talking with filmmakers, novelists, game designers, cosplayers, comic book artists, and anyone who works in the field of make-believe. I also look at the fan experience, asking, why do we suspend our disbelief? You can subscribe to Imaginary Worlds wherever you get your podcasts.